Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Hey, so cool to have you here tonight as we kick off our, uh, our brand new series, Mind Games. And again, as uh, the team just said, if this is your first time visiting us, or maybe it's your, your first time just in church, or maybe for a long time, we're, we're so thrilled you've joined us here, and just you've come at such a really cool time at the start of a, a new series. And obviously, as the guy said before, the, some of the gold of our community happens in groups during the week. So anyway, we can kind of help you take a next step beyond Sundays. Uh, we'd love to have to help you with that. But I'm really excited for this, uh, for this new series, talking about our thoughts, talking about uh, our minds and everything that happens in it. And, and obviously, with the great advice Dr. Russ just said, shared, then this is, this is such an important topic because, um, we, you know, we, all day long, all week long, our whole lives, we are filtering through messages and thoughts and ideas and advertisements, you name it, your brain is working overload all the time. And we can't always control what thoughts enter into our brain, but you and I are certainly responsible for what we do with the thoughts once they, once they get there. And so we want to take a few weeks to talk about some really practical skills of how to negotiate and navigate all the different thoughts that run through our heads and, and really how faith in Jesus really intersects with a whole lot of our, what happens up in our head. So I'm, I'm so grateful you're here. This is hopefully going to be really helpful for you. And uh, what I thought I'd do to do something a, a little different for this series, and you probably noticed there's a whole lot of different mind games that you can go read on the walls all around the auditorium and in the, and in the foyer there. So make sure you do that. They'll be different every week. But I did my own little mind thought experiment, and I, I needed to find someone um, to, to kind of to do an experiment on. And, and today the experiment kind of was outworked. And they didn't know I was doing the experiment on them, and so, but it happened today. And for this research uh, opportunity right now, you would have heard the guys who talked before. We had the Sunshine Coast Marathon on today, and the whole lot of people committed the half marathon. And one of the people who towed the line of the half marathon today was my good friend Elliot Hines. So can we welcome Elliot up just for a moment? Come join me, mate. Look at him limping. Oh, you ran up him. Good to see you, mate. Thank you. Okay, so about two and a half weeks ago, you reached out to me. Yeah. About the half marathon that was yep. happening today. I think, I think I messaged you. I said, is it possible? And you, um, you said it was. So, so, okay, so th- he didn't know this. So he's only finding this out. As you, I'm like looking, who, who can I do Well, you, you were giving it away slightly through it with your incessant laughing at me. <laughs> right. That I was kind of like, oh, are you serious? Or? No, no, laughing is helping like, no, to, no, to loosen good. you up, to not feel fearful about the yeah, endeavor. No. So if anyone's ever tried to run for like over 20 kilometers, you generally need longer than two weeks to prepare for it. But Elliot asked me, Elliot's like, can I do it? And I thought, this would be the perfect experiment for Mind Games launch. So I said, of course you can, Elliot. Let's do-. And we worked out a plan. Why yes. did you reach out to me in the first place? Well, I, I just got back. Well, I was in Japan. I had a holiday with my, my lovely wife. And I was like 15 bowls of ramen in. And I remember looking down. I'm like, babe, am I the, am I the same, you know, like when we got married? I've, I haven't changed at all, have I? She's like, no, no, you, you, if anything, you're cuddlier. Cuddlier. Ah. And I was like, that, well, that's not a thing. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to start running. And she was like, yeah, cool, you'll run. So I was like, well, I, it was almost like a challenge. She put out this, like, you, you're not going to run. You, yeah, I've, I think, well, I have Reverse said it. Reverse psychology. I have said it game. once or twice before and not followed follow through. through. Yeah. yeah. So I, I messaged John. I'm like, mate, there's a marathon coming up. Check the dates. I'm like, oh, that's for two and a half weeks. I was like, John, doable? You're like, Go for it. Wasn't a great decision. 
<laughs> well, in, well, now reflecting, now we can reflect as all happened. So if anyone wants to do a half marathon, least six to eight would be ideal, I imagine. Well, the thing is, the thing is, so this was like the perfect experience because we've all heard the thought, you know, mind over matter, all those ideas. And so I was like, here we go. No, no one trains for a half marathon, at least wanted to finish it without stopping the whole way and without injury and without passing out from dehydration or anything like that. You need longer than a couple of weeks, right? But I was like, I want to see just how strong his brain is. So kind of do these mind games. So Elliot, as much as we, we got a training plan there, tell me about kind of the mental preparation you had to go through for it. Well, it's, it's like... It's like, what voice are you going to listen to? There's going to be multiple... You get to that like stage where you're, you've never run before. So I only ever run up to that point to a 15. So the, the last six, six kilometres were unknown territory. And I remember you saying, mate, they're going to be the worst six kilometres you've ever run in your life. I was like, oh, great. And he said that the, like, the night before I ran. So it was like, I couldn't get out of it at that no, point. No, you were signed up. And I was um, I'm there and I, I, I remember I'm hitting those last six and it was just... There's di- you have all different voices. You've got the voice going, this is ridiculous, stop now. And you're like, oh, but I've come this far. And then yeah. you're going, oh, but you're, co- you're passing like a coffee shop. You can just pop in. <laughs> no one would ever know. You just take a table, have an eggs, have Benny, a latte. latte, fantastic. And you know, then stroll to the end. But it's like you, there's this like, you're just constantly fighting. And, there's this, this, and for me, it was like, I knew that the, the voice that I didn't want to listen to which was like, no, nah, you should probably keep going, was the voice that I ended up listening to and was probably going to be... I, I look back now, I'm like, oh, I'm glad I didn't obviously get the eggs Benny at 7.30 this morning. Right, yeah, good decision. Yeah. And the good news is, you finished the race, you did it in like six-minute kilometre averages. I, I think that is absolutely amazing. Elliot Hines, Thank ladies you. and gentlemen. Well done, bro. Pulled it off. So, if you're wondering, if you ever come in looking for my advice, don't, just don't, right? I'll be, I'll be playing games with you. So, what I want to do, I want to start with a question. This requires um, crowd participation. It's, it's very simple. Directions are simply, if this is you, just raise your hand. And the question is this. How many people here tonight are convinced, or at least you've got a hunch, that your conversations are being listened to via your mobile phone or some kind of technology you keep on your person? How many people? Wow, wow. Okay, wow. At least, at least half the building's convinced of it. Okay, so the, 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 the fear around this idea, the thought around this idea, and, and many of you probably done your research on this or heard someone who's into conspiracy theories or whatever it might be, right? You've got your idea from somewhere. It's so much of our lives now are outworked on, uh, on the internet. And again, this isn't new, so I'm just, I'm just covering common ground here. So much of our life is outworked on the net, um, a lot of, not just our social, you know, socializing and meeting people and dating, but also, you know, we shop. You know, many companies now are going bust because they haven't... Tr- you know, transition effectively into being an online-based company. Uh, we do our research, we do our study. A lot of you, for those of you that are in university, you're studying. A lot of businesses survive off online traffic. So, so, so much of our world now, and so much of uh, I guess our interactions in life happen online. And there's many, many smart companies that have certain algorithms that pick up the patterns and habits of your online activity. And what they do is they use these algorithms to shape then what. 
uh, promotional and marketing material is thrown your way. So for example, uh, if they see you're always interested in you know, checking out Bali, and you've maybe just researched it once, you know, Bali, how much does it cost to go to Bali? Has ever noticed that as soon as you do that once, and maybe you've even just talked about it on the phone or something like that, next minute you're online and there's constant like, you know, Bali deals happening and here's this villa for like a dollar a night and, you know, Jetstar, Death Star tickets are going, you know, half price, whatever they might be. And so it's like, oh, they're, they're listening in on me. Now, however you sit on that, it's, it's, the, the idea behind it is actually pretty handy. If any of you remember the old days of, you know, free-to-air television <laughs> where you had ads, you know, and the, most of the ads you just didn't want. Like this boring, a boring, you know, a carpet ad, super, wow, amazing. Look, the rug store's having another closing down sale, boring, you know, or whatever it might be. So, so what these algorithms do, they simply show you the marketing material that they see that you are interested in because of your online activity. Pretty handy stuff, you know. I, I don't want to see marketing material for Mecca Maxima, right? I don't care about eyeshadow that much. Well, I care about it as much as my wife cares about it, and she looks great with it and all that, which is a lot. Therefore, I care about it. Christmas every year, I'm always good. So um, well, I, I do care. I do care. So th- there's, there's some material that I, I want to see. You know, there's some stuff I'm interested in. So that side of things is really cool. But here's where sometimes the troubling, the troubling side of it, where people have brought caution, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, is it's not just marketing material, things to buy. It's also... Uh, we're often fed ideas about what to think about a given subject or event. And based off your research history, the data that's shown online about you, the articles that you read, articles that you like, conversations that you have, pages that you follow, all those things, these algorithms are able to see and make an assessment based off what your opinions are or you're leaning towards a given idea. And it could even be a political thing. It could be a social awareness about a certain topic. And then it will start feeding you and continuing to show you articles, particularly on like a social media stream or, or platform, articles that you, it's determined that you already agree with. And so you start scrolling, you see an article and kind of, it, you know, it's got that clickbait there, a title that catches your attention. You click on it, you're like, oh my gosh, it's so true. Whatever it's, you know, propagating. You're like, that's exactly what I think. I knew it. This article says it. Therefore, I'm, I'm right. Okay. And then we get shocked when you talk to people in the real world and, and people can have a deferring opinion to you or a different idea about any given topic. And you're like, no, 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 no. I've read it on the internet. You know, trust me on everything I've read on Facebook has told me this. What's happened is you've found yourself in what is known as an echo chamber an echo chamber. It's a real thing whereby you are fed simply the ideas that you already agree with. And you are fed information and articles and opinions. And obviously I'm just referring to an online platform here, but we spend so much of our time on it. This is why it's important to understand this. And we are fed ideas that simply confirm our own biases, thoughts that we are already well established with, a lot of the stuff we then see online, um, people that come up as suggested friends. It's a whole lot of this community that happens online that simply will confirm the ideas and sometimes even the prejudices that you and I can already hold. And this condition, if I can call it that, is what's known as an echo chamber, whereby all you're hearing is opinions and ideas that continually reiterate thoughts and opinions that you already have. And as much as this is cool in terms of a marketing area, when it's about buying things that you actually want to buy and things you're interested in, when it comes to our thinking and when it comes to our thoughts and when it comes to our reason and our logic and what happens in between you two ears, your two ears in your head, this is a much bigger issue. And if you find yourself in an echo chamber 
whereby you're not letting any other thoughts or any other ideas or any other wisdom or any other rationality pierce your brain and get you to think beyond where you are, you can find yourself in a dangerous and sometimes really healthy thought cycle, which is known as an echo chamber, where you refuse to let any other reason or any other thought break the patterns and thinking that you currently have. This is what's known as an echo chamber. Now, the uh, the term is a very new term. It's kind of a new, one of those new kind of urban dictionary ideas. But the problem is an old problem. It's not a new problem. It's a situation that's been around a long time. In fact, the New Testament writers would tackle this thing head on. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of our New Testament, one of the most profound areas where he addresses within his second letter to Timothy. Timothy was like a, a mentee, like a son in the faith. Timothy pastored a church like this. And Paul was kind of like his, his oversight. And so Paul wrote several letters to him in his second letter, Paul addressed to Timothy. He, he talked about the dynamic of echo chamber directly. And here's where we pick it up in 2 Timothy. Paul writes this. He says, For the time will come. Keep in mind, this was written about 2,000 years ago. So it's pretty profound insight to the world we now live in now. He says, The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. I'll come back to that term in a second. Instead, don't miss this, to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of podcasts <laughs> to, say, to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth. And this is so important to understand this dynamic here before we get to the next slide. So they're going to turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Essentially, this is what Paul's setting up, that, that people, and you and I are included in this, we will have an inclination to lean our ears and lean our thinking towards something that isn't even true if it's simply something that we just want to hear, something that our itching ears desire to hear, even if it's not true, even if it's a myth, even if it's just an opinion, if it's something that we want to hear, something that we already desire, we won't care if it's not true. We just want to be affirmed on our own itching ears and what already we want to hear. And Paul is warning against this. He's saying, be careful to get caught in the trap of the echo chamber, whereby you refuse to listen to truth, you refuse to listen to sound doctrine, and you just turn your ears to whatever myth, whatever opinions are out there, even if it's not true. He gives a warning about this. And then he says to Timothy, but I also think he's saying it to you and I. He says, but you, but you, keep your head in all situations. Keep your head. So in all these opinions, in all these thoughts, in all these echo chambers, you keep your head. In other words, he's saying this, be mindful of your mind. Take care of your thoughts. Be, be careful to not play games with your mind because your mind is the filter in which all the information that you'll digest and hear through the day, that means marketing alone. You and I have to digest through thousands of messages, let alone opinions, let alone worldviews, let alone myths versus truth and all these dynamics in between. Paul's warning is the warning you and I need to hear to. Be mindful with your mind. Be careful with your thoughts and don't allow yourself to get into a habit whereby you latch onto a toxic, toxic thought and just go over it and over it and over it and just find people that are going to confirm your bias or confirm your opinion until you find yourself in an echo chamber. Even though it might not be true, you happily found your right and you happily sit there. Paul gives a warning for this and he says to you and I to be mindful of our minds. Keep your head in all situations. Now use this term. 
He said, people will not be able to stomach sound doctrine, sound doctrine. Now, what does this term mean, sound doctrine? Doctrine, it's, uh, I mean, it's used a lot of different scenarios, but within a biblical perspective, doctrine refers to essentially uh, teachings about God or, or the Christian worldview or the Christian perspective of any given topic. That's what we would call a doctrine. So you could say, for example, tell me the doctrine of salvation. And so it would be, we look through scripture and what's, what is the biblical teaching about salvation? That's referred to as doctrine. But the term sound here is an interesting one. It refers to something that is um, tested, something that is proven, something that's with able to stand criticism, to hold its own, to be challenged, to be approved. And the direct translation of the word sound in this context here is healthy or something that is good for you. So Paul's saying, this is amazing. I mean, the fact that he was able to see what our culture would be like 2,000 years later is profound to me. But he said, people will not be able to stomach healthy teaching, I mean, instruction in life and instruction about God that isn't radical. It's simply good for you. It is sound. It is helpful. It is proven. It is tested. And he says, eventually we will have the, everyone has the danger in their life to not be able to stomach something that is helpful for you if it's simply not something that you want to hear. And we will turn aside from something that is sound, something that is true, something that is healthy and helpful, and stay within our echo chambers simply because it's what we want to hear. And over the next few weeks, I really want to tackle this. I don't want us to be afraid of this. And maybe you've found yourself in a, in a certain thinking perspective, maybe not only about the world, maybe even about your own life. Maybe, maybe you've found yourself thinking about God and just one-dimensionally, this is what I've always thought about God, and this is how God is, and this is what I'm like, and this is how I am. Well, I want to unapologetically challenge our thinking together over the next few weeks about this and to look at how can we together discover the idea of what sound doctrine is that's going to help us. I was personally, uh, I encountered how important this is uh, when, I first, when I first got married to Chloe. I've only married her once, but when I first got married to her, um, that wasn't meant to be funny, but there you go. At least Chloe laughs. Thanks, darling. <laughs> um, so when we first got married, I, just, I discovered this in a brand new way. I was... Um, uh, prior to being married, when I was a single guy, I was learning to be a preacher and, you know, was working here at the church. And so I got to cut my teeth on this platform and, and, and practice what it was to be a public communicator. Now, um, you know, the stats say that um, public communication still is almost the number one fear on the planet today. Who would agree that it's like more scary than pretty much death, walking on a platform? Okay, there's a whole lot of people. So, so you get this, right? So you're trying to learn to do this for a living. It's, it's like, you, it's freaky when you learn. And so when I'd often get off the platform and I was learning, I'd walk off here and a whole lot of you who are in the church in that time, number one, I want to just apologize for those years. Thank you for being patient as I was trying to learn. And so, and oh, look at me, I've learned now. No, no, as I'm still trying to learn. But anyways, I'd get off the platform and people would come and they'd ultimately give me really good positive feedback. And, you know, there'd always be the constructive criticism there. But generally speaking, most people were nice most of the time. And they would go, hey, you know, you're doing great. You know, keep it up. You know, you're getting better. You know, all that stuff. And the classic P word, you know, you got potential, kid. You know, great. Thank you. You know, the old potential word. And so, so generally speaking, it was really positive. So I'd get on stage, freak out, and then a whole bunch of positive feedback. And I'd go, oh, this is really good. Hop in my car and drive home. And then start like feeling good about myself. I'm like, yeah, it feels good to get like a good compliment from people. And so I'd then hunt those people down every time I'd get off the stage in the future because I know they're going to give me a good positive feedback, you know, like, hey, tell me what I want to hear, you know, how, how am I doing, how am I doing? Then came along Chloe. And that all changed. And so no longer 
was I driving home after church service alone in the car. I had Chloe with me. And here's the thing. Chloe loves me far more than the rest of you. And she just didn't want to tell me what my itching ears wanted to hear. She loved me enough to tell me what I needed to hear. She loved me enough to tell me what was going to be maybe hurtful, but ultimately helpful for me. And when this first started happening, and I would be like, so Chloe, how was that? She's like, yeah, it's good. And anyone here that's married, you know that, that delay and that, yeah, it's good. It's not just, yeah, good, right? There's more behind it, okay? And so as Chloe began to just be honest with me and truthful and start talking, hey, you need, you need to watch this. And hey, when you say that, you're just never funny, you know? So avoid saying that ever. And whatever it might be, right? So don't ever wear that shirt again, you know? It doesn't work. Whatever it might be. So, and I realized at first I started dreading it. And so like, I would just, it would be that awkward silence in the car on the way home. And just, I know she was waiting for me to ask her, you know, because she was nice to me. She's not going to just prod. She's going to wait for permission. And so at first I was terrified because I was like, this is going to hurt. It's going to hurt my pride. It's going to hurt my confidence. Like, oh, this is going to be so bad. But after a while, I realized as I began to listen to her sound doctrine, you know, her sound encouragement, I realized it actually paid off dividends and it actually helped me. And arguably, I got somewhat, you know, I got somewhat better. And so what first started out about me freaking out about asking her, you know, how's this going? I began to long for it because I knew she wasn't just going to tell me what I wanted to hear. She's going to tell me what I needed to hear. Because I could have easily fallen into the danger of being in an echo chamber and just having the same ideas reverberate around in my head, never growing, never progressing, never maturing, never increasing. And the warning is still as strong today as it was when Paul first said it. It's beware of the danger of the echo chamber. And we can all be susceptible to it because we've all got brains. And we all have to digest and filter through so many thoughts. And the last thing, the last thing I think we should do, particularly if you're a Jesus follower here, is ever close off your brain. In fact, in fact, Jesus himself was so adamant about us using our brains and using our mind and thinking he saw it right at the core of the Christian faith. In fact, when Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was, this is so amazing. You can't, it's easy to miss this, but this is so important. Rabbis would often get asked back in the ancient world, you know, kind of, can you give us a conclusion of the whole, uh, what was known then as the law, or what we'd refer to it today as the Old Testament. There's about 613 religious laws in there. And so 613 is far too many for everyone to remember, right? So there'd be these experts of the law, you know, the, the rabbis that spend their whole life teaching. So people would ask him, can you give me the executive summary? Can you sum up in one. And so Jesus was famously recorded in many of his gospels um, of giving his conclusion about the greatest commandment, the greatest way that we connect with our heavenly father. And here's how it's recorded in Matthew's gospel. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, he said it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Your mind. As if to say this, as, as, much as, as much as Christianity and faith can be a, a heart thing, and it is, and a feeling thing, and, an, and it is, and an experiential thing, and it is, he said it is also something of the mind. Just because you choose to put your trust in God does not mean you leave your brain at the door, right? And right from the outset, right at the beginning of, since the beginning when Jesus came, and then as Christianity began to grow from there, this idea that somehow 
to put your trust in Jesus and to believe, be a believer in God meant you kind of stop thinking and you stop using the faculty of your mind that God has gifted you with and graced you with. I don't know exactly where that began, but it certainly wasn't something Jesus himself propagated. He went so far as to say, how you and I exercise our thoughts is right there at the heart and soul of the Christian message and ultimately at our relationship with our Heavenly Father. As much as we love Him, as much as we connect with Him, the way you and I are able to connect with our Heavenly Father is by using the brain that you have been given. Isn't that amazing, right? And often there is this wrong thought. And, and maybe you're, you've learned this at uni, maybe you have friends, or maybe you're like this. And always your hesitation towards faith has been, I just think like as soon as you walk in a church building, like I've got to stop thinking and I've got to kind of become... No, 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 no. That was never, that was never what Jesus propagated. He invited to us to use our brain. In fact, he said right here was the greatest thing. So right from the beginning, Christianity has invited the thinker to exercise their minds in the pursuit of God. Let me say this again, because I don't want you to miss it. Just in case someone tries to throw a cop out your way and say, Christians don't think and this whole faith is irrational. This was never how it began. Christianity invites the thinker to exercise their minds in the pursuit of of God. Now, recently, an institution known as McKindle Research, they're an Australian-based research uh, center, they did an amazing study of kind of religion and faith in Australia. And there's one particular uh, statistic that came out, and many of you might be already familiar with this, but this is what they, they showed, at, and uh, kind of getting statistics Australia-wide, they found that almost one in three Aussies have no religious belief at all. One in three Aussies, there's nothing. No spirituality, they adhere to no faith, there's just no belief whatsoever. And 50% of those people, of the one in three, 50% of those people, the main reason they cite for having no religious belief at all, get this, is that they prefer a science and evidence-based approach to life. As if to suggest you have to pick one or the other. You can't have faith and you can't have reason. You must pick. But that is never, ever been the case with the Christian faith. Christian faith has never told you to ignore your brain and to ignore your thinking. Reason and faith are not at war with each other. Okay, so, so, so maybe that's been something like, oh, no, no, do I believe in God? Do I believe in science? Listen, listen. I, love, I absolutely love science, okay? Every time our scientists come up with something phenomenal and discover something how something works for the first time, they discover something about the universe and the galaxies or something so small, like the most minutest things they can discover. Every time they discover how something works, the Christian response should be this. Ah, that's how God did it, right? So it's not like, oh, whoops, science is real, God's not, right? That, that idea was never, ever, ever there from the beginning, but somehow there's been this popular idea they have to pick one. I just want to say right from the outset that they are not at war with each other. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Many uh, uh, Western historians are unapologetic, even ones that are not Christian, completely secular. They're unapologetic in citing that Christianity at large was responsible for allowing the logical thought process to flourish around the world. It was when Christianity was birthed and when Christianity began to spread that they found mysticism and myth began to die down and logic began to rise. It was the belief in the Christian God that caused the sciences to flourish. Now, why is it that you ask? Because, and maybe this is doing your head and thinking, don't I have to pick one or the other? You don't. So I'm just going to give like a 30-second quick background of why this worked. There's a picture here of one of the most famous figures from history. And of course, everyone knows that this is... You got it, Alexander the Great. Nice job, everyone. Give yourself a round of applause. Okay, 
No one did because no one said anything. Did you? Trixie. Yeah, well, you produ- it gets better. I don't even know what I'm saying. Well done, Trixie. Good job. So this is Alexander the Great, long and short of it, okay? So he conquered more of the world that anyone ever conquered during his time in the ancient world. In 10 years, he went even further than Europe into Asia, all the way down into India, and even into much of North Africa, Egypt, and beyond. It was, it was quite amazing. After his campaign ended, Greek culture remained. So Greek language, Greek thought, Greek literature, and Greek logic. And, and this is what's known as a Hellenization of culture. The, kind of, the Greeks left this huge, big cultural change in their way. It's why, for example, that the New Testament is written in Greek because it was generally understood as the global language at the time. So Jesus more than likely spoke Greek um, as well as probably Aramaic and Hebrew from what we can understand. So Greek was its dominant culture. But what the Greeks were overtly known for was rejecting myth and holding on and propagating their philosophy, which highly exalted this idea of logic, whereby many of the cultures that as the kind of Greek culture spread, they come into many other cultures whereby they were still holding on to myths and ideas of the creation narrative and why things worked the way they did and why the tide worked and why everything, and they kind of attribute it to the gods and all this stuff. And all of a sudden the Greeks came and said, no, 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 let's use our brains for a moment. Let's think about this. Let's study. Let's research. And it was, it was within the soil of the Greek culture that had spread through the world that Christianity was able to flourish. And the reason why is because Christianity, and this is so important, do not miss this, is because Christianity had its roots in an event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the New Testament writers, they were like, again, we kind of look at it you know, all these years later, and we can forget this. They were there. They eyewitnessed Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection. And so they recorded what they saw. And it's easy to miss this blinding fact. They recorded dates. They recorded names and people. They recorded ge- geography and places and events. Essentially what they're doing by writing this is saying to those who are reading, fact check. Check the facts. You can meet the people. We wrote their names down. We tell you where they are. They saw it too. And this was what was so radical about the Christian worldview and the Christian ethos and the Christian belief. It's because as much as it was based on a supernatural event, yes, like the resurrection is unapologetically supernatural. It was a testable event. It was a provable event. And this became kind of the two edges of the, of the Christian worldview that began to spread so remarkably across the world. And so right from the beginning, this idea of somehow separating our thinking and separating logic and separating thought from faith was never there. It was never part of the foundation of Christianity. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, his name was John. He wrote one of the biographies of Jesus, and he named it after himself, the Gospel of John. And in the very first verse of the very first chapter of his book, here's how he explains God. He said, in the beginning was the word, and that word is translated, the word word is translated from the Greek into logos. That's why I've got it there in brackets. Now, take a guess. What word do we get in English from the word logos? Logic. And so here is the Apostle John. Saw the death of Jesus. Three days later, witnessed him resurrect. And here he was now as an old man writing this, that in the beginning was a logic. And the logic was with God, and the logic was God. And so right from the beginning, there was never this thought that putting your trust in the Creator, putting your trust in a resurrected Jesus, didn't have to mean you setting your brain aside, setting your thinking aside, casting all your brain over there and go, I no longer think anymore, I just believe. 
The first followers of Jesus would never have said that. They would have said, no, 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 lean in with your thoughts. It's one of the greatest ways you can love God is with your thoughts. And it's this logic, ultimately, as this began with Jesus, that reshaped the world. The reason it reshaped the world is because it completely spun the hierarchy that all the global cultures operated around on its head. Many hierarchies were built out of power. And so people in power would leverage the ideas of the gods and mythology and allegory, all these ideas in order to keep people suppressed under them. That's how they're able to justify slavery as a legal thing. That's how they're able to argue that men had different values to women and children had different values to adults. The elderly had different values. to adults. All, all these different arguments. But yet the Christian logic came in. The Jesus way came in and it said, all of that, it's rubbish. It's myth. And it taught the world to look at each other so differently through the godly logic. It says, you see your neighbor? They're as valuable as you are. You see your spouse? They are as valuable as you are. You see that slave? You're no more important than them. They are as valuable as you are because Jesus Christ died for the world, the whole world. Didn't become a respecter of whether you're a man or a woman, old or young, rich or poor, slave or free. The message of the gospel was for everyone. And so this radically changed how the world saw each other, how it interacted with people, the value that was placed on people. And here's the thing, history and not even ancient history, modern history shouts a huge warning to you and to me about the dangers of removing this kind of godly logic from the planet. Every time a nation and its leaders reject the God of logic, the God of love, Jesus Christ, the first people to suffer are people. People suffer. You take God out of the equation in a nation, you're left with Stalin's Russia slaughtering what we know at least 18 million of their own people. I mean, think of that. How, how degraded can you view humanity to do something like that because they declare God was dead? You take out the God of, of logic, you take out the God of love and you're left with Mayo's China. From what we know, 30 million people slaughtered. You take this kind of God out of the equation, you have Pol Pot's Cambodia. You have Hitler's Germany. But you invite in the way this new Christian ethic shaped the world, people become valued and people become loved and men and women look at each other radically differently. And ultimately, the person that you see most different because of this new logic that has reshaped the world is you. You begin to think about yourself the way your heavenly Father thinks about you. And with all the thoughts and with all the arguments and with all the opinions that our brains have to filter through and wrestle with all day, and we're all in it, like we're not excused from this, Wherever, whatever your employment status or your relational status, wherever you're at in life, you have a brain. And this is a wrestle that constantly goes on. Here's the thing. In the same way, that like this whole Greek culture was the soil in which the Christian logic and the Christian ethos could spring up. Our thinking provides the soil 
in which our lives will grow into something. You're thinking because what you think will eventually come out in your words. And what you speak will eventually be outworked in your actions. <laughs> and how you act will eventually turn into your behaviors and your habits. And your habits will eventually turn into your character. And your character is what defines your destiny. So much is birthed and fought and wrestled right here in our thinking and our thoughts. And so do, what are we to do with our thoughts? Here's the thing. There's so much that happens to us in life that is so far out of our control. I mean, take for instance, trauma, grief, crises, loss. I mean, even growing up, if you were spoiled as a child and undisciplined, if you had a silver spoon in your mouth, if you had no spoon in your mouth. I mean, so many life events growing up played such a huge role and often things that are far out of our control. This series isn't necessarily about the things that are out of our control. This series is about what is in our control. This series is more about what you and I can do with our thoughts because the truth is, is what we do with our thoughts is in our hands. And maybe you found yourself in a echo chamber of thoughts because of your life events and some of them just have been the worst life events and you've been left with maybe a scar or something insanely difficult and painful to navigate and you found yourself in an unhealthy cycle of an echo chamber of thoughts and it is just it is anxiety inducing it is sleep stealing it is joy robbing and you get the chance now to kind of let something penetrate those thoughts and that echo chamber and begin a new set of thoughts for you. And you then begin to say, I either keep holding on to these thoughts that have been going around in my head and the way I see myself, or I'm going to let how my heavenly Father sees me shape how I see myself. And friend, you are so loved by your heavenly Father and His thoughts towards you. I mean, we sung about it earlier, the fact that <laughs> I am a child of God. I mean, this is, this is amazing. That's how your heavenly Father sees you. You are valued, you are loved. And my prayer is over these next few weeks, we would allow the message of Jesus and God's great love towards us to absolutely intervene, intersect and intrude our echo chambers, change how we think about the thoughts that we have and ultimately decide to put our trust in what our Heavenly Father says about us. So what do we do? The Apostle Paul says that we're to keep our heads in all situations. How do we keep our heads? Well, arguably, it's the same way that you and I are to keep a garden. You tend the soil. You pull out the weeds. You add fertilizer, water, care, sunshine. You've got to take care. You've got to be mindful of your mind. I want to invite you back over the next few weeks as we look at how do we do that practically. And so here's the question I want to leave you with tonight. Is what is having the biggest influence on how you see yourself. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.